It's rare that you encounter a professor, a scholar, who has such a breadth of knowledge of different topics. He understands the history of, say, the Constitutional Convention and can tell you where Madison stayed and how much George Washington paid for his bar tab the night before the convention concluded. So he knows the history, but he understands the theory, the big important questions as well. His breadth of knowledge also extends well beyond what we're here tonight to discuss. Uh, some of his books include two narratives of political economy, the New Deal and modern American conservatism, the two faces of liberalism, Hoover the Hoover-Roosevelt debate, which is great. Herbert Hoover, who you know, is a field president, this man has redeemed him in my eyes in many ways. It's a, it's a great book if you're uh, interested in that, in that area. I, I've asked many scholars over the years, when did the revival of the teaching of the American founding start? And generally speaking, the, 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 the answer I get is, in the last probably 60, 70 years, and it revolved around the Federalist Papers and, and bringing back the Federalist Papers. And now, when we think about the founding, we really, you know, one of the first things we think about is let's sit around and read the Federalist and talk about it. What our speaker this evening has devoted his career to is broadening that conversation to include the Anti-Federalists and he's written a book called The Essential Anti-Federalist, to include conversations about the Constitutional Convention, to include conversations about the Bill of Rights, not, the, not what you get in a common law class, the, you know, what happened after the Bill of Rights, but the development of the Bill of Rights and why we have a Bill of Rights. And I would say that the most important contribution that he has made is in reviving the study of the Constitutional Convention. Um, this was something that you know, very few students read, very few students paid attention to, and because of our speaker's work over the past decade or two, it is now something that is taught in high schools across the country in a way that it never was before. It's now something that we're paying attention to as we think about the founding. We're looking at the contribution that Madison left us with this debates. And in fact, our speaker this evening has worked with us to put together the most definitive version of what Madison wanted to leave to America in our debates of the Federal Convention of 1787. And I think, of course, Jen, we have some for sale. We have some for sale? Yes, what are we selling them for? 1999 for students are 10 bucks. Is that cool? Okay, good. So, pick <laughs> so, up a copy. Hopefully, we'll be encouraged tonight to do it. 
I, I would actually go so far as to say as, as, as you look at the rise of the study of the founding and where it started with the Federalist, I, I would say that in terms of bringing the Constitutional Convention into that conversation that we have today, there is no person alive, or I, I would probably even go so far as to say that there's no person since James Madison who has promoted it more than our speaker tonight. Gordon Lloyd has uh, been at Pepperdine University for many years where he is now a professor of emeritus and I am um, uh, very glad to say that he is now a senior fellow here at Ashbrook joining us a couple months ago. He is a, uh, a dear friend personally and a dear friend professionally to our work here at Ashbrook. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Gordon Lloyd. that Roger has indicated, which is the website dealing with the Constitutional Convention. And by way of introduction, what I want to do is to contrast uh, Madison's Republic initially with Plato's Republic. And this is something that Chris Burkett and I worked on several years ago. And if you know that, if you remember the story of Plato's Republic is, it's took place probably one rowdy night, if it took place at all, where Socrates has conversations with more, more, two, two young men, one spirited fellow and one moderate chap, and they have this conversation all night, and probably there was some drinking going on. <laughs> Uh, probably a lot of drinking going on. <laughs> <coughs> and the interesting thing is they engaged in a Socratic dialogue, which is not simply equal give and take, but Socrates asks the questions. And you, ask, you give the answers, and then Socrates asks the questions, and it shows what a fool you are. <laughs> and then moving dialectically, they move from an opinion about what the best regime is which is somehow a city only fit for pigs, and moves all the way up to the best city, the best regime, which is called the Republic. And at the core of that Republic, Socrates announces that the best regime, the Republic, can only take place when philosophers become kings or kings become philosophers, which you, mean, you know full what it means that philosophers must become kings because kings can't become philosophers. And not all philosophers are decent, which means that Socrates must become king. <laughs> so, we're already, we're already, so we're already with a problem that Socrates is the hero and the winner, and a republic is a monarchy. So we've got, a little, we've got, a, we've got, you know, we've got some problems on our hands. But Socrates declares, until philosophers become kings or kings become philosophers, 
There shall, my dear Glaucon, there shall be no end to the ruin of the city, which means faction is at the core of the problem as to why regimes fail. Now, just let's go move out of this imaginary conversation into real life. No regime has ever lasted forever. Every single regime in the history of the world has collapsed. And it has collapsed sometimes through external invasion. But the most difficult issue to grasp and deal with is why do regimes collapse under their own weight? What is it about the regime that is created, which seems to be perfect, but nevertheless has certain imperfections which leads to its ruin? And, and, and is ruin inevitable? It would appear that, if not inevitable, well, certainly that is a, shall we say, <coughs> a certain predictable trend unless something is done about it. And we learn that the people who are wise misuse their wisdom, and down and out we go, and tyranny results. In real life, Socrates is, does not become king. He's killed. And some would say, about time. <laughs> what took Athens so long to get rid of this pain in them? <laughs> I am reminded I'm dealing with 18-year-olds who don't know these things. <laughs> so, I am suggesting that we look upon Madison's Republic in the same way. That is, that Madison is not only a delegate, as Socrates was a delegate. Plato was not a delegate. Plato was the author. But Madison is not only a delegate, he is the author. The author. But he's not an author in which Madison appears to be the hero all the time. In fact, Madison is very accurate with where he loses. And I think this is a phenomenal piece of recording. It is not just notes and jottings. It is a real debate. And it's not a debate just between three people in a, quote, Socratic dialogue. It's a debate that lasts 88 days, not one night, 88 days for five hours a day, six days a week, Ultimately, we had 55 people. Average daily attendance was 42. <laughs> I, I look at you because you look like a data man. <laughs> it strikes me as a data man. I might pull you into the conversation quickly. You feel right, Mike? All right. The average, the average age was 42. Oh, wow. See, now, now I really got you. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there was some drinking going on. So there's a parallel there. But the main point, <laughs> the main point I want to get at is, whereas in the Socratic regime, wisdom is the claim to rule, and a certain kind of wisdom, namely philosophical wisdom, and a certain kind of philosophical wisdom, metaphysical wisdom, and a certain kind of metaphysical wisdom, only the kind of wisdom that Plato and Socrates understand, as the claim to rule. Madison is not claiming that metaphysical wisdom is the claim to rule, but rather consent is the claim. And that means that you're going to have more than, look, think about it. If a regime is created by one person, you don't need consent. 
and that has followed the way they come, whether it's Moses or Theseus or whatever. You've got regimes that have been created that have been partially successful, but you don't have to sit around in a room and chat about accommodating people. So with consent comes some degree of accommodation. And what I'm going to suggest is that the Madison Republic is not a monarchy, and it is not based on metaphysical wisdom, but it is based on practical wisdom, and it is a certain kind of republic. But it is not a republic in the sense of the best regime that could possibly be imagined, but it is the best regime that is possible under the circumstances. So that it is no accident that Madison, I think, is seeking a more perfect regime rather than a perfect regime. And in that distinction between more perfect and perfect, liberty either stands or falls. Liberty is not central to Plato's Republic. Liberty is central to Madison's Republic. So I'm looking here not just at Madison as the author of the Constitution, because he himself would say there are many authors, and I would back him up on that. But I'm also looking at Madison playing a dual role sort of a, a Socratic role of a participant, but also a Platonic role as a writer. And he has left us with this magnificent discussion that has taken place that hardly anybody reads because most of the time they've taken Madison's first draft, which is jotting, since Chris and I have, have worked on it, and Roger and I have worked on it too, is that, <coughs> but in his later life, he turned it, I have no idea, how long it took Plato to write the Republic, and whether we're reading the first draft. I have no idea, for example, uh, how long it took Shakespeare to write Hamlet. And you want to say Richard II, or really, seriously, Richard II's life did not exist in two hours, although on the, if you go to the stage, it's two hours, right? So we don't have to know every single day. I mean, you don't, you're not supposed to take a stopwatch to Madison's work and say, I could read this day in less than five hours. Therefore, Madison hasn't said everything that's happening on this day. Of course not. There's Luther Martini who is there. And Luther Martin uh, sort of went on, I was a little inebriated. Ah, he was drunk. And, and, and Madison just says, and Luther Martin went on and on and on in a delirious fashion. Now, do we really need to hear five hours of that? We've got the point. Right? So he's not a court reporter. He's an artist. He's a writer. He's like Plato. He's like Shakespeare. Dare I say so? Yes. This is one of the best pieces that, uh, of American political literature broadly understood that, that, that I can imagine, and it's well worth the time. However, it takes some effort to get at it, because it's a 700-page book, and your eyes will roll over, and you won't know how to get it, which is why I like Alan Bloom's sort of introduction that comes at the end, as to help you to read Plato's Republic, or there are guidelines on how to, not the cliff notes, there are guidelines on how to read certain Shakespeare plays. And so what I've done with the, with the with what I've called Madison's Debates or Madison's Republic is I put a guide at the end in the appendix, not, to, not as a substitute, but as a way of trying to hold your attention so that you don't give up too early. All right. That's part one. I am looking at Madison's Republic 
in the sense of a comparison, a contrast with Plato's Republic as an author and also Madison's Republic as Madison as a participant over against, say, Socrates and the other participants. This is a democratic republic rather than a monarchical. Um, by the way, the word republic, strictly speaking, means public good. But by the time Madison was writing, it was either a republic for the public good or a monarchy, mono one, ruled by one for the, the sake of one. So there's a certain uh, problem, which we can talk about in the, uh, the Q&A, concerning the meaning of the word republic. But at this time, I'm trying to suggest that Plato's using the word republic as the best regime, and Madison is using it as the best possible regime. That might be say, the difference between a Plato and an Aristotle. All right, so how do we go about trying to grasp Madison's work and his <clears throat> presentation to us for posterity? <clears throat> well, if we were to scroll down, we would alert, we would see that <clears throat> the website is, is broken down into a number of parts. The first part is the introduction we really don't have to deal with that at the moment, except to look at the following. That the introduction introduces what we would call the authorization question. In Plato's Republic, Socrates is walking along and he's stopped by Cephalus, the old man, and, 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 and excuse me, by, by uh, Polymarchus, who has power, and they're stopped. And, and they go to the house and they have a chat. Now, there was no real authorization for this chat, and the question of why should it have taken place and should Socrates have left is not really a big issue. But there is a question of authorization or legitimacy as to why this Constitution Convention took place. And there are two authorizations. <coughs> Excuse me. One is the Annapolis Convention, which appeals to the Declaration of Independence. Namely, it's the right of the people to choose the form of government under which they live. And that's Madison's position. That's the authorization. <clears throat> um, and, this, and the second authorization is that the existing government in, in, in power, which is the, under the Articles of Confederation, needs to authorize a meeting, particularly if that meeting is going to be called to revise or alter or undermine the very government itself. So you've got these so to say, dual authorizations. The younger crowd, particularly led by Virginia, is using the Declaration of Independence and the Annapolis authorization. It's the right of the people to choose. The older crowd and the more prudent crowd say we need to have a specific rule or mandate from the existing government. So the introduction lays out there were six states that followed the Annapolis rule, which says we don't have to wait around for any government to tell us what to do. This is America. And the other one which says, this is America with the rule of law. We need to have authorization before we are accused of doing something illegitimate. And six states went that way. Rhode Island went neither way. <laughs> they just stayed home. So that's the introduction. If we go to the convention, itself and we go there we go to the top which has a four-act drama um, one way <clears throat> to use 
imagination to grasp what is going on is to imagine that you can break this text down into four acts. And, and this is still within the spirit of, of Plato. It's still within the spirit of Shakespeare. Uh, you might accuse me of overdoing it because Madison does not say act one, act two, act three, act four. I say act one, act two, act three, act four. So am I helping Madison out? The answer is yes. <laughs> why, why am I helping Madison out? Because I want him to get into contact with you, and I want you to get into contact with him, and I want to encourage your imagination to see this work as worthy in the same league as Plato and Shakespeare. Act one, the alternative plans. So we know why we're there. The articles somehow are inadequate. You've got two groups of people. One group are structuralists. They, want to, they see a systemic problem. They want to alter the structure of the articles. Those are the younger crowd. That's the younger crowd, the Virginia crowd. The more prudent crowd, the older crowd, are more interested in altering some powers, leaving the structure alone and going home. So you've got the Virginia plan, which is a structural change which is then met by the uh, New Jersey plan. I don't want to go over this, a lot of this because you do this, you do this a lot in, 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 your, in your classes, but what I'm trying to do is to contrast it with Plato's Republic without going into great detail, but to show you how things could fit together and keep your attention. New Jersey plan, so you've got structure, powers, and they, and they, they have a huge discussion about which direction we should go. And within that discussion on June the 6th, where you have um, the, uh, the Madison-Sherman exchange, if you go to the scene four, Madison-Sherman exchange on June the 6th, you've got uh, every single day there's a resolution on the table. Every single day there's some kind of proposal that's there. And they're talking about representation. And Madison says, in effect, providing the draft of Federalist Number 10, what we need is a system of opposite and rival interests in a diverse commercial republic, and a large diverse commercial republic, in order to settle the disputes of faction. Not eliminate faction like Plato would, but to control the effects of faction so that liberty can prevail. And Sherman responds that people are happier in small republics than they are in large ones, and thereby calls on the tradition of Montesquieu. So within Act One, you have proposals, plans, and a, say, a practical wisdom debate over how large this country should be. As far as Plato's Republic is concerned, it's going to be very small. For Madison's Republic, it's going to be rather large. So you've got these various views coalescing. Not just small state versus large state, but you've got these various views. And if we go back to the, to the outline, the, we've, got a, we've got the following situation. And it, it, it makes for a good story, although it's a good story, so let's just tell it. I don't know that it is true at all. In fact, I, I don't think it's true. But here you have the articles in which 
Congress can only do those things which are specifically granted in terms of power. And there's only one branch. Here you have, here you have the Virginia Plan, which has a separation of powers outlined, and Congress can do anything that the states are incompetent for. That seems like a rather huge gap. Then you have the New Jersey Plan, which says, well, let's keep the structure, but change a couple of powers. And you can imagine, as one political scientist, historian has imagined, that what you need, since Americans love the middle ground, we need to make Virginia Plan look like the middle ground. The only way to do that is to call on Hamilton. <laughs> so Hamilton presents a plan which is way over here. <laughs> and by presenting this plan way over here, he makes the Virginia plan look moderate. <laughs> Isn't it prudent to choose a middle ground? Hey! Great politics! The problem is no one changed their mind. So that's a great story. But I don't hear many good stories about Plato's Republic. But that's one of many good stories that you can tell about Madison's Republic. The curtain falls on Act One. Madison is bruised, but basically he's carrying the day. So you think, well, let's get down to specifics now. <clears throat> but they don't, because the losers refuse to give up. The losers say, what we're doing is illegal. Response, who gives a rip about it being illegal if the future of the republic is at stake? Because we don't have a republic yet, but the future's at stake. This is a very American way of taking a specific issue, and by the time you get to the, by, by, by noon, you, the, the whole world is about to blow up. <laughs> and and the, uh, the next answer, the next problem is, look, if we do, if, if we were to go along these lines and create this plan, which the world has never seen, of course, they've never seen Plato's Republic either, but the world has never seen, therefore, it will never fly in Ashland. All right, Connecticut. <laughs> That's a bit of a stretch, right? So it won't, the voters won't approve it. And so the response is, we haven't had a focus group, so we don't know exactly what the voter is going to do. But our job is to present the best plan that we can. And that leads the convention into what is called a full stop. So for two weeks, no advance is made on this issue of what kind of republic are we going to have. And people at this point can drop out of the discussion. Not only the reader, but also the delegates. And they did. Why? Because people like action, they like to see some resolution. But if you can just recall from your own short life, you can tell that there are certain dynamics in life in which Tomorrow doesn't seem to make much difference than today, and the day after doesn't, and then somehow there's a breakthrough, and you don't quite know when that breakthrough is going to occur. Just think of labor negotiations. Just think of negotiations between you and your parents, between you and your friends, uh, that, that somehow nothing seems to happen. Uh, it's, not, it's not that you want closure, you want breakthrough. And a breakthrough occurs at the end of June, and the breakthrough is that Ellsworth from Connecticut decides, well, why don't we be partly national, that is, do things in a big scale for certain items, 
and do things on a small scale at the local level for other items. Let us be partly national, partly federal. But no one has thought of that. We have to be one or the other. We say, well, we're American, right? We can think outside the box. We can do that. But there is no sense in it. it only, well, the reason there's been no sense is no one has thought about it before. So let's think about it. So a committee is created, and they come up with this Connecticut Compromise, which says that the House represents the people, and the Senate represents the states. Now, Plato didn't have to deal with that whole institutional issue. But that is at the core of the creation of Madison's Republic. Representation for the people and representation for the states. Having done that, they can now get on with the business. And so the curtain falls at the end of Act Two, and there's an intermission. And you say, Lloyd, now you're really going too far. No, there was an intermission. Five people were selected to come up with a draft of the Constitution. <laughs> Who are these people? Well, I invite you to go take a look. But one is from Massachusetts, one is from Pennsylvania, one is from Virginia, the three largest states. One is from Connecticut, the compromise, and state, and one left over because you don't want four people. You have to have five to bring a tie. And the, showing you the dynamics of the convention at that particular moment, the fifth member is from South Carolina. And that fifth member announces before the committee meets if anything is done to end slavery on, by this committee, South Carolina will not sign. And that's a complete change in the dynamic of the, of, of the convention. And what, again, we're not dealing with Nero. We're not dealing with, with, uh, with Moses. We're dealing with various delegates who have this consent is a messy process. And sometimes you engage in conversations in which um, the alternatives are bad and worse. And we just need to, we need to come to grips with that. You want perfection? Choose a, choose a, uh, a philosopher king. You want imperfection? You've got democratic republic politics. And that's the price you have to pay. Okay, just because we're going to be democratic doesn't mean to say we're going to be decent. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> where does the decency come from? You and your teachers. So Act 3 provides this first draft, and they talk about it. And the big issue they talk about is slavery. And they send it back to, rediss to rediscuss this. Act 4, the end is in sight. One of the things they haven't dealt with yet is the Electoral College. Why not? Well, because the issue, it's not that they haven't dealt with the presidency. It's that there's a division of opinions at the, at the I mean, what kind of king or, or president are we going to have? Are we, can we have a president without having a king, never mind a philosopher king? And the answer is, yeah, but are we going to have one or two? Are you serious? One president of the two pair presidents? Yeah, I, I think I'd like two. Well, I can't answer that until I know how long the president is going to be in office. Well, I can't answer that unless I know the president is going to be impeached. Well, I can't answer that unless I know whether the president is, um, can stand for election again. Well, I can't answer that until I know whether, what the powers of the president are. Well, I can't answer that unless I know whether there's one or two presidents. 
<laughs> so the job of this indelicately called leftovers committee, which is also known as the Brearley Committee, their job was to break through this mess. And what, how did they break through? The Electoral College. And I invite you to consider to what extent was at the heart of this Electoral College anything to do with not trusting the people. And the answer is that is a progressive historian's 20th century take on the, on the Constitutional Convention. But the curtain falls completely now on September the 17th and they sign. And one of the most important speeches given is by Ben Franklin, in which he says, look, this is not perfection. This is the best that we can do. Let prudence be our guide. Um, we'll never have another chance to, to, to get this done. Why don't we work, why don't we adopt this and work within the system and provide for amendments to the Constitution so that if there's a problem down the line, we can always amend it. But we need to take advantage of the opportunity that is given to us and to secure whatever blessings of liberty that we can and, and to move on. And that sort of brings the curtain down on the whole story. Now, I've spent some time on this to try to show you that there is, in fact, a drama. And, in, and two weeks of doing nothing is part of the drama of life. There are highs and there are lows and there are decisions. Some, some people walk out and some people get ticked off and other people come up with a new plan and a breakthrough. Now, another way that you could look at the Constitutional Convention and not lose interest is by looking at it as a day-by-day -day summary. So if we were to go back to the main page and you go to the, uh, yeah, in, in that section, a day-by-day -day summary. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but if you go to the day-by-day -day summary of the convention, yes, then you can see that every single day there is a resolution. You could, if, if, at least you scroll just quickly through it to say, see there's resolution 9, 13, 14, 15, 17. So every day, and if you anchor yourself in the fact that there's a resolution on the table so that even if you start to get lost with the digressions that often occur in a conversation, you can bring yourself back to saying there's a specific issue. And that's another way of trying to help you stay the course, stay with Madison, stay with Madison the author, and stay with the framers. Okay. The ultimate, of course, which is what I want you to do, is to look at it in that section again, look at that section, uh, is M Madison's debates, which are, is, are online, if you, if you it, right, there you are. So you just pick a date, say like June the 6th, which I've mentioned before, pick June the 6th, then click, click that on, that's, that's what happens on that day. So you have the entire text of that day. So if you're not, if you're not sort of inclined to go to the text directly, but need some encouragement to go to the text and some guidance to go to the text, you can get to the text, say, ultimately, by the four-act drama or the summary day, day by day. That is also out in book form, as Roger, uh, Roger mentioned. Right, that's a textual way of doing it, which college students love. And, but there are other ways to get at uh, the idea of Madison's Republic. And something that we have 
that does not exist for Plato's Republic, and that is the paintings. So let's take a look at the Christie painting. The Christie painting also occurs on the front cover of, of, of the book. Now there's the Christie painting. Okay, it hangs in the Capitol, which means no one sees it because no one goes to Congress. <laughs> uh, but there, there you have the idea of a debate, a conversation taking place. But here, this is an interpretation. You can always recognize Washington. What I, what I like about this, Roger and I put this together with Ben, that, that you don't have to even know who these people are. It tells you who, who these people are. So that there's Washington. Right. In front, you've got Franklin, you've got Hamilton, and behind them you've got Madison. Uh, the, the, to, to your right is, yeah, and down, and yeah, that's Madison. That's so what Christie has done is to take these three and made them sort of super framers. And uh, I have no idea, no idea what um, uh, Hamilton might be whispering to Franklin. <laughs> I have no idea that they even spoke. Hamilton wasn't there half the time because he was bored stiff and left. Franklin never spoke, hardly ever spoke because he was always mumbling. But you can imagine. So Ben, excuse me, Mr. Franklin, to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, so Ben, what are you going to say when you get outside and you meet the, meet, meet the folks? What are you going to tell them? He says, well, I think I'll tell them we've created a republic if you can keep it. And, I, and so Hamilton's imagined response is, well, wait until I'm Secretary of State and we might have a monarchy if I can get it. <laughs> <laughs> But I have no idea what they might be, you know, what they might be talking about. <laughs> and then you've got the, the delegation up there with their raised hands. They're all from South Carolina. By the way, South Carolina was the only delegation in which all the members attended every single day. And that tells you something, at least it tells me something, that is the persistence of attendance bestows a certain degree of influence because you're there all the time. And they seem to be saying, all hail to Washington, <laughs> which is a way in which uh, certain people used to say hello to each other in America. Um, uh, and, but now we just shake hands and spread germs. <laughs> but, but really, I mean, at the core, this shows that this was done during the 1930s, during the Depression, and most regimes, to say, lasted for 150 years. The idea was, if America lasts 150 years, we've done pretty well. And so here's the 150th anniversary during the Great Depression. How are we going to try to portray we're going to get out of this and America is still great? And the flag is there. By the way, so this is the way in which Americans used to salute the flag until Hitler came along and spoiled it. <laughs> and it was in, in 1942, Congress passed an act saying, you shall salute the flag by putting your hand over your heart. That's when that happened. You didn't know that, did you? See? 
I knew you sat in the front row for a good reason. <laughs> you get all these tidbits, right? Yeah. Now, if you look at, this, look at the South Carolina delegation again, you'll see, right, there's a guy back there by the name of Pierce Butler, whose face you can't see, because it's covered. But if you click on Pierce Butler, you will see there, you learn more. <laughs> and then, that's an unofficial, that's an unofficial painting that I managed to secure. And I'm telling you, if I look like that, I want to hand over my face too. <laughs> now once you realize that Christie is paying all this attention to the detail involved in, in what's going on, you, you, you start, you start, I do anyway, get really into the notion of interpretation of a constitutional convention. Uh, one last point about this Christie painting. If you, go, if you, you can see, you can see here uh, on the ground, this is the only delegation portrayed by Christie that's sitting around a table, although in actual reality there were 13 tables. They always had a table for Rhode Island, but never, right. There was a table, and it was from north to south, and they voted north to south. And, but Christie only presents one table, and it is the Connecticut delegation. And it's difficult to interpret an interpretation, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> Look at all the crumpled paper on the floor, which would, to me, suggest that, as far as Christie is concerned, the Connecticut delegation is um, far from being happy. They're, they're rather upset with what is going on over against these superdelegates up in front. And it would be interesting if you were to do a paper saying, do, if you were an artist, how would you portray this, this scene where the three, think about it, Hamilton's main reputation comes after the convention. Franklin's main reputation comes before the convention. And yet they're right up there in terms of the American story. But of course this is an American story. This is the, but this is the whole point. It's, it's an American. It doesn't have to be um, like a clerk recording every single detail. All right. So there's a painting that you could that you could do. There are other paintings we could look at, but we can leave that for later on if, if we want to. Let's take a look at historic Philadelphia. Actually, what I'm saying is that some historic event took place in Philadelphia of momentous importance in, a his, in an actual historic area. And what this map does, and again, this is uh, the insight that, that both Ben and Roger have brought to this, this project, is that we, these red dots can become illuminated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and, and along here, you can have uh, you can have a, a guide as to where you're going to say, so Old City Hall, Old City Hall should light up on there, etc. All right, what I want to do is to go to Mrs. House's boarding house. That's right, this is Mrs. House's boarding house. That's where Madison <coughs> resided. And that's where the Virginia plan was hatched. How have we remembered, if we're talking about Madison's Republic, Plato's Republic, the great books, the great thing. Somehow we have to remember or at least examine how do we remember things 
What do we remember? What do we forget? What do we throw away? What do we keep? And how do we move on in life? I started keeping, if you go back one, Lisa, um, yeah, one more, yeah, right. I started this, uh, back in the 1980s, I decided I'm going to keep a uh, sort of a, a photographic compilation. And Lisa's taken some pictures for, uh, along the way for me, and you'll see some of them in a minute. In the 1980s, that was a men's toilet. That's Mrs. House's boarding house. And you wouldn't know much about it, except you can see there's a plaque on the side there. And if you scroll down, you will see what the plaque says. James Madison, delegate to the convention, such and such says, lived here. That's the total memory of what we have of James Madison's and the deliberative republic that was hatched in Mrs. House's boarding house. Mrs. House used to, was, was a, a lady whose daughter was married to a Virginian, and they uh, liked to have Virginia delegates in Philadelphia. Now, what has happened in the 2000s is if you, if you scroll down, that that part of the house has been scrapped and a, some concrete has been put up. The irony, of course, is that it's, it's, it's under, it's, here's the irony. Somehow democracy is no longer deliberative, de deliberative democracy, therefore you don't need to keep Mrs. House's boarding house as a memory where people deliberated and discussed things. Democracy somehow now is dissent. So that the key to portraying democracy in Philadelphia is a slab of concrete where anybody could stand up and say whatever is on their mind. But the irony of that is a glorification of the First Amendment which Madison himself wrote. And if we now look to the other side of Mrs. House's boarding house, as I, I think you took this photograph for me, is if you go all the way down, all the way down to the end, um, keep going, keep going, keep going. It is now an ele uh, elevator to Market Frankfurt line, trains to Frankfurt. That is what's happened to Mrs. House's boarding house. I raise that not as a grim possibility, but I, I, I raise it, for, for example, my father collected, in his retirement, he collected more than 200, taped more than 250 jazz, yeah, jazz tapes. And when he died, I, I, took, them, I took them all. I was, one day I'm gonna do it. So I turned to my son and said, you know, this is, this is great stuff. And he says to me, but Dad, why are you doing that? These are, these are the mere muses of an of a old guy in his retirement. Moreover, you could get any of these jazz things in higher quality for 99 cents. And you think, yeah, but it's my father. I'm thinking, you bastard, what's going to happen with him? <laughs> <laughs> when I get older, all my books are going to Ashbrook. <laughs> You will appreciate it. <laughs> okay, uh, we can we can go and take a look at uh, this place on Dock Street, right in here. Not just there. That's the scene of Governor Morris' accident. Governor Morris was he has a peg leg, 
In this photograph, it's painting it's his right leg. In other paintings, you will notice if you go in, it's his left leg. But he did have a peg leg. <laughs> but he didn't have two peg legs. But he had one. And the story goes, well, we have to remember it. I can tell you if you, if you, if you, if you uh, scroll down, you can see that this is the exact spot right there where that occurred. And no one has remembered that. I have, do, I have offered $500 for a plaque to the city of Philadelphia to mark the spot where Gouverneur Morris lost his leg. But I haven't been, I haven't been, um, no one has taken me up on the, on the offer. <laughs> but Gouverneur Morris was riding in a carriage with a married woman. Married women apparently love Gouverneur Morris. That was George Pegley. And they just loved him. And apparently he was adorable. <laughs> but one husband was irate and chased after the carriage. And Gouverneur Morris jumped out of the carriage to save his life. And the wheel ran over his leg. And the solution was, off with your leg. And in those days, the chances of survival was about 10%. But Gouverneur Morris survived. And there's a... If you, I think if you scroll up, rather than down, yeah, scroll up. Let's see, what, what, um, uh, according to one of the historians, but called Carl Van Doren, the rumor was that Gouverneur Morris jumped from balcony, but Van Doren says that he, he lost his leg being thrown from a carriage because there were no amorous balconies in Philadelphia. <laughs> um, a friend is said to have written to Morris, that the loss of his leg might have a good effect on his morals. <laughs> Since it would reduce his inclination to engage in the pleasures and disputations of life into which young men are too apt to be led. The young Morris responded, you argue the matter so handsomely and point out so clearly the advantages of being without legs that I am almost tempted to part with the other. <laughs> John Jay apparently wrote to Morris, that he was tempted to wish that Morris had lost something else. <laughs> now, I don't find anything funny in Plato's Republic. <laughs> but I do find something funny about these characters, right? And they're living in, and this is a cobblestone street. Um, all right, that's, 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 that's two of them. Uh, we should end it, right, for, for, for folks to... Okay, so we should end on the entertainment of George Washington. So we go back to resource... Here we are. Now, I was in, it was in 1985, and I was uh, part of the miracle in Philadelphia. Oh, I should go back one moment and say, but, but, uh, you know that Christie painting? The Christie painting, a parent told me that the Christie painting had been used in class in, in high school. And I thought, well, that's great. And the parent told me, well, but what the teacher asked was, what's wrong with this painting? As a, I try to encourage critical thinking, I got, got the, the answer which the teacher wanted and received was if these are only um, white men. 
And that's what's wrong with that painting. And I was thinking about the debates last night with Trump and the other people. And I thought, well, what would Trump say? <laughs> and the answer is, I'll tell you something. There are eight immigrants in that room. 20% of those signers are immigrants. Moreover, two are Catholic. <laughs> so I think that's a different spin on political correctness. Uh, so I think, I mean, why, what country in the world would permit, oh, by the way, by the way, think about this. I mean, I'm going to say, what country in the world would let immigrants sit around a table and create a constitution? Well, I'll tell you, a country would, that would, get, would grandfather them in. Under Article 2, to be president of the United States, you have to be natural born. Or as our dear friend Peter Schramm would say, you have to be Native American. <laughs> right? So you have to be natural born. But there is an exemption. And the exemption is, except for those people who are currently in America in 1787, anchor framers. <laughs> okay, let's <laughs> take a little while to catch that one. I only worked on it last night. And in the car coming from beautiful Latrobe, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so let's 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 wrap this let's wrap this up. Oh, I'm glad you're not laughing at all. <laughs> you're, you're a real hoop, you are. <laughs> all right, let's wrap it up because we, we need to. So let's do the entertainment. I was I was um doing you're you're very good natured, sir. <laughs> I was helping out with, with the Miracle of Philadelphia exhibit, and I thought, oh my goodness, I've just stumbled on the farewell dinner that the framers had. City Tavern, September, if you, September 1787, there were 55, 55 gentlemen. Ooh, there were 55 framers, although only 39 there at the last. But ooh, I'm excited about this. 15th of September, well, it's close to 17th. But cheers on that. This was the entertainment of George Washington. That was Saturday night. And Monday, 17th, was the state of the signing, which is today. And uh, I've been told that the dinner menu is probably exactly the same. But I cannot prove that it is exactly the same. But I'm going to show it to you. To 55 gentlemen's dinners and fruit, relishes, olives, etc., 20 pounds. 54 bottles of Madeira. 20 pounds five. 60 bottles of claret, 21 pounds. Eight bottles of old stock, three pounds six and eight. 22 bottles of porter, two pounds 15. Eight bottles of cider, 16 shillings. 12 bottles of beer. Seven large bowels of punch. Framers were high on spelling. Cigars, not there either. Spermacities, candles, etc. To decant up, oh, to decanters, wine glasses, and tumblers broken. <laughs> to show you how democratic this republic is, and not a platonic republic. This is real stuff, not a play on platonic relationship. You got 16 servants and musicians get dinners with 16 bottles of claret. <laughs> Thank you for serving. Five bottles of Madeira and seven bulls of <laughs> For a total bill of 89 pounds uh, at a uh, 
student in the MAG program uh, calculated it in, in, in when and Chris and I were, were, um, uh, were teaching that course with this guy. And it, and it, can you imagine that? That was four years ago. Anyway, that, multiply by octane, blah, 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 blah. The, the cost would approximately be $15,400 for that. <laughs> Does the, anybody eat anymore? <laughs> I know, if, if, if the framers came back and said, well, which generation in America do you not recognize? Prohibition. <laughs> if you scroll down some more, I got a letter. I got a letter from George Christhilf, uh, the, the, the 24th or something the other day, and, and about two, three years ago. And he said, um, this is his great, 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 great grandfather. And I said, what do you, what do you know about him? He said, no, not much, but it's interesting, it's interesting, interesting bunch of people. I said, yeah. Think about it. George, George Christhilf, he gets a pound. Mr. Schultz, a pound. Mr. Trenner, a pound. John Kaiser. William Hartung, Philip Rotti, David Kurtzrock, John Wilner, Conrad Spratenberg. They get all this. Oh, and then there's John Dunlap. But they got seven pounds ten, and I think, what the heck are all these Germans doing there? And the answer that Mr. Christhilf, the 25th, tells me is that they were part of the, a regiment of mercenaries that was sent over by King George and captured. And that in 1783, when the peace treaty was signed, the, um, they were released as part of a prisoner of war exchange. But they decided they wanted to be American. <laughs> and they stayed. And can you imagine that? Four years later, here they are playing at, um, at George Washington's farewell party to Donald Trump, <laughs> an immigrant's delight. Thank you. Now, it's your turn. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, I'm Eric, and I have a question that um, you said about the Electoral College, it wasn't about controlling the masses and factionalism. What was the purpose of the Electoral College then in the framer's mind? Where do the states fit in? No, 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 no. I'm answering your question. I'm answering your question. What was on their mind? Where do the states fit in? So, for example, should the states elect the electoral college? Should the people elect the electoral college? Should the states elect the president? Should the people elect the president? Well, the Connecticut Compromise earlier came up with a compromise. Why don't we have both? So. What we have is this rather complicated um, outcome that a lot of folks don't understand, which is, for example, today, each state, yeah, put it this way, we're not, electing a, we're not electing a president of America, we're electing a president of the United States. You vote, but you vote, let's just say, as a person from Ohio. Your vote does not cross state lines. The progressives would love it to cross state lines and have one national popular vote. There were times when James Wilson wanted that. There were times when James Madison entertained that. But reality kicked in. What are you going to do with the states? They're there. Okay. So what do we do? Well, your vote will count but it will not cross a state border. 
and then your vote will be enveloped in with other Ohioans, and that, that Ohio will cast a total number of votes equal to its representation in the House, representation in the Senate, too, which then produces a Connecticut Compromise. And even today, what if the Electoral College, uh, through this process, but what do you do with the people in Washington, D.C.? The answer is you have to pass an amendment pretending that Washington, D.C. is a state. Therefore, it gets two, because it's a state, pretend state, and one, because every state is entitled to one regardless of population in the house. So you get three. So you get 435 plus 100 plus three today. You divide by two, get 270. But what happens if you don't get 270 because you've got three or four candidates winning? The president, still today, the presidency goes to the house. There are 435. Bye-bye, uh, D.C., you're out now. You're gone. That, that can't be such a fundamental thing. Yeah. How undemocratic. How federal. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to the House. There are 435 people, in representatives, actual live representatives <coughs> in the House. Well, half dead. 435 <laughs> representatives in the House. How many of them does it take to elect the president? A majority. So that would mean you could do your sums. Hmm? 1% over 50. 1% over 51%. Uh, so 51%. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so 51% so of, of what number? 50. That is correct, sir. It's not 51% of 435. It's 51% of 100. Or 50. Excuse me, about 50. In other words, it goes to the people's branch and they elect by equal states. You say, that doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't make sense at all if you think that we should be a national democracy and the states don't matter. If the states do matter, then it makes sense as to how that. This is not an My point is, it's not an attempt to exclude the people, it's an attempt to how do you include the states. All right, so, that, so what happens to the vice presidency? The vice presidency goes to the Senate. Right? There are 50 states in the Senate. I think you've got the hang of this. How many votes does it take to elect the vice president? 26. You, I, I thought you got the hang of it. I thought <laughs> The gentleman over here who came up with the answer for the House. So if there are 50 states and it takes a majority, how many votes does it take in the Senate to elect the Vice President? 51. 100 by 2 close one. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mess with you and algebra. <laughs> 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 You're <hot> stuff. <laughs> the point is, it's, a, it's, it's part of that problem of how do you have a partly national, partly federal, and you go to the people's branch and you vote to states, you go to the states branch and you vote as people. Mm -hmm. Hi, and thank you for coming. Um, I'm McKenna Shorb, and I just had the question, 
of, you know, you talked about how Madison was taking such diligent notes during the convention. And I know in the book that um, mentioned uh, Madison actually goes back and looks at some of the notes he had taken during the convention right. and struck out those and actually got the the facts from other people who were taking notes. That is correct. You read the book well, Madison. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, why do you think it was that only a few people were taking notes during the convention if obviously Madison thought that it was such an important thing for our future generations to read about and understand the origins of the whole process? That's a very good question. I think there are, there are a variety of reasons, but let me, limit it, let me limit my answer to two or three. Reason number one, certain people who did take notes, like Yates and Lansing and McHenry, didn't, weren't there every day. So they could not provide a complete, as complete an account. Uh, another reason was I don't think that they took the notion of conversation as seriously as Madison did. That is, they had summaries, but they didn't do it as a conversation. If you read the Madison text, it's clear. Mr. Pickney stood up and made the following discussion. Da, da, da. And he and then Mr. Jerry responded to Mr. Pickney. I mean, I could almost see Plato's Republic, Adamantus saying this, that, and the other. And Glaucon interrupting, this is a city fit for pigs. <laughs> that kind of thing. So I think that Madison uh, realized the importance of the occasion more than a lot of others did and others were coming and going, and Madison was determined. In fact, there's one painting which is by, um, the one that hangs in Philadelphia, Glaxman painting, that is very accurate because it presents Madison as sitting right up there next to George Washington. So he, he deliberately did that from the very beginning, and he said, so that he could hear everybody and, and write it down. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that we researched that Chris and I did some time ago was to, to, to show that, that Madison took notes, but in 1818, after he left the presidency, uh, and also John Quincy Adams got, as, as Secretary of State, he got permission to publish some of the other people's notes. So Madison had not published his notes at that time, or, or, or debates or anything. And so Madison was asked to, to get in the discussion, and he said, no, not until I'm dead. Not until, I only publish these posthumously. But what he did between 1818 and the mid-1830s was to take what John Quincy Adams found from Yates, and he went back and and said, maybe I was wrong on this, or maybe I was wrong on that. And Jackson's journal came through with this, that, and the other. And so he went back and corrected it. But the most important correction that Madison made later on was the correction of turning what might be called notes, jottings, first impressions, to get it down like a stenographer, and turning it into a piece of work, an artwork. And that's what I've tried to reproduce. 
that in the 20th century, Madison's coverage has become called notes, which implies jottings. And what I've tried to do is to restore Madison's attention, which is that he wanted to leave debates on a level, at least in my argument, of Plato's Republic or Shakespeare's plays. And that requires turning your notes into actual conversation and debates. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then that, that you, you, yeah. My name is uh, Josh. Uh, That's very important for me to know. Josh yeah. <laughs> uh, My question is, is uh, where, how do you, I would like to know your knowledge on, because you're, you're a pretty wise guy. And, uh, You'd only say that because you mean it. <laughs> I mean, all right, so uh, what, do you, what do you think about our government today and uh, on the, we don't have enough time. No? <laughs> well, I could say it stinks. And I think one example I would give is look at the number look at the member the number of members of Congress who want to run for president. And both sides. What's wrong with being a member of Congress? What's wrong with being a senator? It seems to be like Obama, first term, Biden, Hillary Clinton even went to New York to become a senator, and then Secretary of State now wants to become president. Bernie Sanders wants to be president. He's a senator. Mark Rubio, Cruz, there's somebody else there. Rand Paul! What's wrong with being a senator? So what's wrong is that members of Congress don't want to be members of Congress anymore, or want to run for president, they have fallen in love with the administrative state. Either president or some secretary of state or something like that. Which means that the change in the nature of government has changed from a representative democracy where Congress is the core to the administrative state where the executive is the core. Well, no, they said administrative, well, you know, they said administrative state where you where, where you've changed deliberative democracy for, 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 for action. You've changed civic education. You've given up. You, civic engagement has replaced civic education. Look at, look at the look at last night in the Republican convention. You'd think, you'd, you really would think that it had some kind of executive thing on their mind. The first day I'm president, I'm going to tear this up. I, could, could you go to Congress first on that? <laughs> I mean, it didn't seem to cross their mind that they would go to Congress. Now we have got executive orders all over the darn place. So what do I think? I think members of Congress should learn what it means. Somehow, and I don't think it's going to happen, which is one of the rare times I'm grim about this, I, because I really want to be optimistic. I think what the part of the problem is that is that members of Congress are more loyal to their political party than they are to the institution of Congress. That's what's wrong. So that it doesn't matter whether uh, members of Congress think the Iran nuclear deal is right or wrong. I have to stand by my president. Why? Why do we call a presidential election the election and, the, and, the, and the, what happens in between off year. What's off about it? Right. What's mid about it? Mid-year, mid-term about it? I think we have to change our language to 
to encourage, I don't know how we do it because Congress is the branch that is least respected by the voters. So we're, so we're in a, we're, representative democracy is, a, is, a, is in a difficult situation, yes. And I think that the way in which we, we get out of it is step by step, as, as Roger Beckett said tonight in his opening remarks, that Ashbrook is at the, at the core and the leadership core in trying to turn up civically educated people with regard to the nature of the American regime. And you're not going to turn out civically educated people who respect and want to restore or keep the American regime if you teach the young to hate their country. I don't know about you, but I can't, I can't be madly in love with something who's ugly, that's presented to me as ugly. That, that doesn't mean to say that I can't see some ugliness, but I don't see any prettiness being presented. Would you vote? What do you think? Like, who would you? Who's, who's your your uh, likely candidate right now? None. Trump daddy? None. Trump daddy? I really like Trump. That's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough of you. <laughs> I think coming. So, in uh, the Anti Federalist Papers. Is that is that is that sort of a stock line that you have to say to people that? I think that's just a convention that we've sort of... Yeah, I thought you meant informally. it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do mean it, though. It's, yeah, okay, that's good. But um, in, in the Anti-Federalist Papers, yes. uh, in uh, Brutus 12, he argues that the preamble can be used by judges to interpret that the spirit of the Constitution means uh, something greater than uh, what's actually written in it, where these vague, big terms like uh, promote the general welfare or establish justice uh, just allow for so much more power there. But I'm wondering, what do you think was the intent behind the preamble, uh, and why did they add that section uh, at the start of the Constitution? Well, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a very interesting, uh, two very interesting points. One is, what do they have in mind? And is Brutus correct? There's sort of two, two points here. That preamble didn't appear until September the 10th at the convention, which is part of the Committee on Style report. And uh, at the time, it, 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 the idea was, uh, well, two things. One, why don't we drop the name of the the states that are involved. See, the Committee of Detail report says, um, we the people of New Hampshire, such and such, such and such, such and such, do adopt. And by dropping the, the naming of the states, which is the, what the preamble does, it sort of extends the enduring life of the Constitution so that every time a new state entered, you didn't have to alter it. And, and so that, that was one part. So once you start that, then the question was, why are we doing this? And you could say, well, you mean to say you waited until the end to figure out what it is that you're doing? Well, uh, well, not really, because they've been talking about general welfare and common defense had made its appearance in the Committee of Detail report. It was in the Articles of Confederation. So that was pretty standard, um, maybe just a stylistic for emphasis purposes, right? 
then you've got um, pretty much what all regimes are interested in, which is domestic tranquility. Uh, they, they've got to have you know, law and order. And I think that, that what makes American politics American, whereas the, the, the first three I mentioned you can find in many, many countries, but what makes America is that is union itself. Union, the, the nature of the union, the importance of union becomes sacred. Right there at the beginning, not just with Lincoln, but it's right there. The, the compromises with South Carolina are indicative, it seems to me, of, of the importance of union. And you can say, well, is that, what's the high ground? Union is sacred. What's the low ground? The low ground is that back in 1787, Florida was Spanish. Louisiana had not been purchased. The Northwest Territories had just been secured. And Canada was still British and, 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 and French. So there was a union was part of self-preservation as well as being sacred. And then I think the, the, the importance of, of the other two is liberty and justice. That that's what, in a, a sense, makes the, whereas Plato's Republic is all justice and no liberty. Madison's Republic is about liberty with justice. And, it, and so that whatever justice we have has got to be consistent with liberty. So I think the preamble stylistically helps us to understand what we the people do ordain and establish. So there are other parts of the preamble rather than those six, purpose, six purposes, which I think are important stylistically to state. But now, Brutus is correct, it seems to me, not just because of the preamble, but because of that very tricky clause in the opening lines of Article 3, which says the, the Supreme Court shall have, uh, which extends under this Constitution, uh, right? And Brutus's point is, what, what can't a court look at under this Constitution? And I'm, I mean, I'm putting words in his mouth, but only sort of spoon-feeding him, not force-feeding him. And it is that if you, let the, if you let the court roam in the preamble, and let the court roam under this Constitution, then you will have the following. We live under a Constitution, but the Constitution is what the court says it is. And Hamilton in Federalist 78 actually responds to Brutus. Brutus Brutus's essays precede Hamilton's essays. And, and Federalist 78 says, it'll never happen because the justices will be tied down by precedent. They will only, they will only judge uh, unconstitutional those, which, those laws which manifestly <coughs> violate the clear meaning of the Constitution. And, and his punchline, Congress will never let it happen. <laughs> And what Congress has done is to give the court pretty much whatever it wants. Uh, so there's another aspect. Not, not only do we need to figure out what a representative, should a representative be more attached to institutions than, than party, 
but we also need to understand what is the role of Congress in a three-branch system. And Congress controls the entire jurisdiction, but has was pretty much given it up. And the, and the president has declared executive orders and executive privilege all over the place. And it's not just liberal presidents. Nixon did it. Conservatives have done it. In fact, there's been a, in my opinion, a rather lax attachment by conservative scholars and liberal scholars to institutional framework and more attached to whether our person is in office, which is a shame, which goes to civic education rather than to the, I mean, as, as I think Roger would tell you, when, 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 when education improves in America, it's not that conservatives are better off, Americans are better off. And when something, it's not just that liberals are better off, Americans are better off. And the more we focus on that, the better off we shall be. But look at the, but the degree of partisanship implies to me that our attachment to party is extremely strong and distinctive. Whereas maybe in the 19th century it was, it was um, attachment to class. Now we've got, really, the, the interesting issue in American politics for me right now is one side there's a bunch of people, particularly from the intellectual side, who say we're going to be attached to our race or our gender. That becomes identity politics. Okay? And then there's another bunch of people who say we're going to be attached to our political party. And sometimes they work together and sometimes they don't work together. Very good question. Yes? Uh, yes, you are the last one. Make it good. Okay. <laughs> That's pressure. Um, hi, nah, thank you for coming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you did that. This isn't California. It's Ohio. People are civil. Like <laughs> 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 I just got told off. Hurry up. <laughs> the government would interpret that those are the only rights reserved to the people. Do you feel that with modern interpretation of the Constitution that has become real, or do you feel like the Constitution speaks for itself? I'm, I'm trying to figure out yeah, what you said. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying not to be California, and I was trying to be oh, very no. gentle about it. <laughs> it's fine. I'm a terrible speaker. Um, all right, all right. Some anti-federalists. Let, let, let's work together. Okay. Some anti-federalists anti believe yes. that to put the Bill of Rights at the end of the Constitution, yes. those would be, by listing the rights out, the government could interpret that those are the only rights that the people possess. Uh, actually, if, if, right, I follow you completely. Okay. Uh, what, that position I would associate more with Madison. Because he did not want the Bill of Rights to stand outside and listed like that. Because what happens if you miss one? And you're bound to miss one. Once you, once you get into this business of listing, you're going to, 
This is what I, this is what bothers me about handbooks. From the time the handbook is written, is already obsolete. You missed one. And Madison wanted the Bill of Rights to be included within the Constitution, so that such a clash as you're mentioning would not happen. So I would associate that more with Madison than I would with, with anti-federalists. The, the anti-federalists would want it at the beginning as a sort of a statement of purpose and education as to what the purpose of government is. And then you say, well, here's where the government is. This, this whole notion that the Bill of Rights come in as, an am as amendments to the Constitution is one of those great oddities in American politics. But wait till Friday, Saturday, because that's what I'm going to talk about on Saturday. Well, first, let's thank <laughs> so, he mentioned Saturday. We have a program for teachers going on up here uh, from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock, and usually we try to keep those a little bit smaller, but given that he doesn't make enough appearances in Ashland as, as, uh, as, as we would uh, wish for, if any of you would be interested in joining for that seminar, I don't think all of us will fit because we're having tables and lunch and, and all, but if any of you would be interested in coming, it's going to be from 10 to 2. And you're going to just continue the story going into the ratification debates. Right. And then the why rights. we have a, a Bill of Rights. That's so correct. If you're interested in coming to that, uh, lunch is provided. Just let Ben know. And he knows how many we can, uh, we can fit in. But it would be a great opportunity for people to join us. If you haven't had cake, please do so. Have a good evening. Happy Constitution.